If I'm feeling that kind of way where I'm kind of not really too happy with myself and not really liking what I see, I'll kind of, you know, look at one of my children and, and see them as like an extension of myself. You know, I'm mad at myself for this. What if my children were doing that? Would I have the same reaction? Absolutely not. I would have compassion. I wouldn't be that hard on them as I would be myself. And therefore, it's not really necessary to be that hard on ourselves either. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. It's been a few weeks since the last episode, and to be honest, I haven't been as consistent with the podcast as I had hoped and dreamed and planned to be when I started it a few months ago, back in September. I knew it would be a lot of work, but I I underestimated it a little bit. Um, But I'm not giving up. I haven't forgotten it. I'm really excited to share today's episode, and I've got a bunch of interviews lined up for the next few weeks. I'm so excited for those conversations and to share them. So thank you for coming back, and I'm still committed to it, <laughs> and I hope you'll you'll continue to check the feed and you know look for the updates when the new episodes are posted, and I'll try to be better about kind of giving updates about when to expect new episodes. Today's episode is a really good one. I think it was worth the wait. (laughs) I'm talking to Paul Finn. Paul produced his first feature film at age 21 for Kevin Smith's View Askew Productions. In the music industry, he has toured with critically acclaimed bands The Canesbury Manx and Spider Bags and worked behind the scenes at the legendary Drag City and Merge record labels. Paul paid the bills by waiting tables and along the way caught the hospitality bug. Craft bartending became his main passion and focus. He moved with his wife and two children to Austin, Texas, just in time to help open Garage Cocktail Bar, where he quickly rose to GM and beverage director. Under his leadership, Garage has garnered a reputation for providing an excellent cocktail program and warm hospitality, and received national recognition in publications such as Condé Nast, Imbibe, Maxim, and Architectural Digest. It was also at Garage that he found a kindred spirit with a shared passion for hospitality and industry wellness in owner William Ball, who made the revolutionary decision to provide full medical benefits for the staff. In October of 2018, Paul appeared on the Speakeasy podcast in New York City to champion healthcare and wellness for an industry that desperately needs it. I should also mention that Paul is my uncle, so if you've listened to other episodes of the podcast, you might remember that I interviewed my Aunt Cheryl Paul in episode one, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my younger cousin Olivia Arnold in episode seven, Roaming the Globe, and um, now I'm talking to Paul, and I'm just really lucky to have family members who are so thoughtful and smart and caring and funny, and Paul is definitely one of them. Um, I had such a good time talking to him about the hospitality industry, the need for greater emphasis and access to healthcare and wellness, Paul's um, personal mise en place system that he's created to try to help hospitality workers to notice the behaviors and patterns that might not be promoting their health and, and to help them try to change them. And we also talked about a bunch of other things like what it means to be a seeker and what it means to be a cultivator. We talked for over two hours. It was so hard to edit this because I just wanted to leave everything in. Um, So I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. And at the end of the episode, I'm going to play one of Paul's original songs, I Orbit a Moon. Enjoy. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Victoria. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. All the way from San Antonio, Texas. That's right. So you've become like a really big champion for 
healthcare and wellness in the hospitality industry. Could you just give people a little background about you and what your experience has been like in the industry so far and what kind of led you to this this focus? Sure. Well, I've uh, worked professionally in the hospitality industry one way or another on and off for the last 25 years or so um, in, in many different roles, everything from starting out in my teen years as like a busboy, you know, up through uh, serving and managing, a little bit of kitchen work, not much. Um, and most recently bartending and craft bartending and then and now um, managing and beverage director for a craft cocktail bar in downtown Austin. Um, I'm actually in San Antonio right now for the annual San Antonio Cocktail Conference. Yeah, so I've been in this industry for a long time. Um, craft cocktail bartending and, and running a, a bar like that was the first time you know, in the last like seven years or so where I kind of felt like the job wasn't just something I did for money while I pursued other more artistic things like quote unquote more artistic things like music or film or something like that. Um, it became more of like the, the, the main event, you know, in my career. Um, and part of that is because it, it in itself is a very creative endeavor. Um, I kind of in some ways get the same kick out of like uh, a guest having one of my cocktails and really liking it and making comments about it as I did when I used to play music in front of an audience. Mm. So it's kind of cool how like you kind of find different ways of channeling creativity. Um, it's not unusual. A lot of people in this industry who are my age, I'm in my mid forties kind of have similar stories where it's like they started out in bands or, you know, painting or something like that and, or acting is a big one. And then kind of after a certain point kind of realized like they got, they got the bug for what they're actually doing. You know, you're saying you got the bug for doing craft cocktails and, and like making the, the hospitality industry, your main gig essentially. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I always enjoyed it, like even working in restaurants, whether I was like waiting tables or managing, there's obviously things I liked about it, I wouldn't have done it. But like the whole like cocktail thing, it, and the, you know, it's such a rich sort of subject, whether it's just like the history of spirits and, and how, you know, you can read the history of the world and the Americas in particular through the history of rum or whiskey or that sort of thing, through like the history of cocktails and bartending bartending is a very american endeavor too it's basically like whiskey and bartending are 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 like american like baseball and apple pie mm. <laughs> um but it's, it's such a vast subject and there's so much literature on it now and in the internet age like everything's at your fingertips um but you know it was rarefied for a long time so it's, it's fascinating and it kind of keeps me engaged and creative and it's fun um and it's a challenging industry and I think what a lot of people like about it that do it for a long time is that even though this, it's like the same day every day, the routines are the same, it's different people yeah. every day. So there is actually a lot of different things that can happen. So that's kind of keeps it interesting. But it's an industry that is known for, first of all, a lack of healthcare and, and wellness. In fact, like things are really changing rapidly now. And part of my seminar is definitely focusing on, on, on wellness initiatives. Uh, but for a long time, like um, sort of very unhealthy attitudes and behaviors were kind of championed in this industry. Right. Like good example, like a good example, concrete example would be like a chef burns or cuts himself, right? Um, in a different job, you would go to the hospital, but in, in a restaurant, like you would be ridiculed for that. So it's kind of like tape it up, you know, um, deal with it, you know, tape it up, bend it up, and get back to work and and, and just keep working, and it's almost like 
if a person was like, oh my God, like I, I really actually hurt myself. I need to go to, I need, I need to at least stop working. It's almost like there's sort of shame and guilt involved with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not trying to say like, if you, if you get a paper cut, you got to stop working by any stretch of imagination. But um, it's more the attitude than anything. Cause like it creates this kind of like very, you know, machismo sort of culture. Um, obviously there's no secret of, uh, that things coming out about how, you know, certain people in the industry in positions of power can be pretty awful uh, to females in particular, female workers. And of course, there's a long history that's ongoing each in this very day of how awful guest behavior can be towards female workers. Mm. Um, you know, even like in a really fancy, expensive bar, like the one I run, on an almost nightly basis, there, there's a situation, well, not on a nightly basis, but maybe on a weekly basis, there can be situations where male guests can treat women as if they're, you know, in a strip club or something. Um, and it, almost like it's expected and like you shouldn't like have any voice in that and touching people's okay. And, you know, you're, you're, you're working so that you have to basically do deal with this sort of behavior. And mm. so there's a lot of unhealthy um, behavior on both sides of the fence within the industry an incredible lack of healthcare or wellness or, or treating illness or treating injury, right? Um, most people who work in the industry are uninsured because most restaurants and bars do not offer insurance unless it's corporate or hotel, um, which is really a smaller percentage, um, especially in a, in a craft situation. Um, you're not going to work at a corporate craft bar necessarily. So, so there's that. And then, of course, there's rampant drug and alcohol use as well. Yeah. So you're taking, taking a stressful situation, we expect it. You're basically uh, a live actor performing for the guest, pretending. Well, I don't want to say pretending because you are generally enjoying the experience, but in some cases, pretending when it's unpleasant. So you have to be in your best behavior. You have to be able to answer questions about a variety of topics. Um, you know, I mean, there there are there are classes, there there are courses and seminars now that you have to basically be up to speed with in order to have the knowledge to possess to answer questions in in these kind of situations. So it's like it's becoming pretty academic too. So mm-hmm. you have to be able to do that. Um, deal with injury, little sleep, be around alcohol, and often turn to drugs instead of going to a doctor or, or getting, you know, doing any sort of wellness initiative, right? So it's a very stressful industry. Mm-hmm. And it started to change actually pretty rapidly, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to sort of get the word out about what kind of things are out there. Um, what kind of things can be done, like healthcare itself, like most people would just sort of, uh, most people in the industry own would just not even consider it, you know, uh, they have no problem spending the same amount of money maintaining expensive equipment or expensive decor fixtures. Uh, but then when it comes to maintaining human beings, suddenly that's a a line item they don't want to see on their profit and loss report, you know, (laughs) you were on the speakeasy. Um, mm-hmm. podcast episode 305 uh, yep. in October <laughs> and um, I remember hearing you talk about how owners you know spend a lot of money on on upkeeping equipment and like what about main- maintaining the health of the employees the people the yeah. humans and mm-hmm. you also kind of mentioned in that episode in the hospitality industry you want to treat others how you would like to be treated but then mm-hmm how do you actually treat yourself? Um, exactly. It's like a whole other question. So as humans, I feel like we often just don't 
we don't do the things to maintain our own health and well-being. Um, mm-hmm. And we seem like in some cases it's a, a badge of honor or something to be able to withstand, like you said, like physical pain or injury without, you know, whining or leaving or mm-hmm. whatever. Um do you feel like some of the substance abuse that goes on behind the scenes like is a, a numbing reaction to all this stuff? Yeah, not only numbing, but also just kind of, it's like that Ramon song, like, just get me to the show. I need mm. to be sedated. You know, it's like, yeah. you got to get through a 15 hour shift, you know, for the fifth day in a row. And a lot of people can't do that without a little bit of help, you know, mm. from, their, from their friends. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's the thing and, and obviously there are alternatives to that and that's kind of dovetails into what uh, my seminar is about on Friday it's called personal mise-en-place and mise-en-place is a concept it, it's it's a French term it means everything in its place or everything in its correct place and there's a culinary term um, going back I don't know how far but it, it, it's always been there it's a long time known it um and it's just basically like when you're in a kitchen, in a, in a professional kitchen, commercial kitchen, how the chef has all their stuff set up, whether it's their tools or their garnishes or their fruit or vegetables or knives or cutting board. It's all like always like very meticulous mm-hmm. and very specific and everything is there that needs to be there. Nothing is there that doesn't need to be. Uh, chefs pride themselves in having really good mise en place. Um, it then became kind of embraced by the bartending culture where in a similar way we're actually live in front of the guests right it's like an open kitchen when you're a bartender um so you take great pride in setting up all your herbs and garnishes and how nice your garnishes are cut and your nice fancy tools you buy from cocktail kingdom in new york and all that you know your 30 dollars mixing spoons and stuff like that. <laughs> it gets very nerdy but um it's it, it's but it, it's very logical and it's to execute something really quickly and efficiently and and beautifully um, so that concept, the mise en place, I'm taking that and applying it to the self, like the whole self, the, so your personal mise en place. And so it's basically saying when you apply that to the self and, and you kind of step, you have to kind of step outside of your own persona a little bit and be kind of like an anthropologist to your own self, mm. <laughs> which is a fairly frightening thing. And I, I call it taking inventory, which of course is in some ways inspired by the 12 step idea of inventory, but different in some ways too Mm. but taking inventory uh can be very scary you know when you start to examine your behaviors things you didn't realize you did maybe things you didn't realize you did as frequently as you do and you start to list all the stuff and and when i teach the uh, personal visa plus course the first thing i do is say every day for a week from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed you record everything you do Mm. not not in the detail of like I moved my hand three inches to the right, and picked <laughs> up my toothbrush, <laughs> but you know all the 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 main important points. So, like I woke up at this time, I ate this mm-hmm. for breakfast, I mm-hmm. and I I took a shower, I flossed, I, you know, all those things, and and you start to write it all down, and as you go on the week, you actually start to get a little more detail because you start to realize like oh you know what I do that and I don't even think about it, you know. Um, and you start to see a pattern emerge of like what your day really looks like. Cause like we kind of walk through life telling ourselves that we do this and that mm-hmm. and our patterns with this. And what part of inspiration for this was like people always being late to work, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and their, 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 their reasons were always the same ones. Yeah. It's like there was traffic 
it's like there there's always traffic yeah but and and what i realized and this illustrated a very interesting point people actually generally always think about the best case scenario when it comes to routines right so one day it might take them 15 minutes to get to work and then so for all time they're going to say it takes them 15 minutes to get to work when in fact that might only happen like three times right in a hundred in fact, you, you look at your quickest time and then you, you, you ma- uh, map your longest time and maybe your longest time is an hour. And then somewhere in the middle, when you track the stuff, you start to realize what the true average time is uh, for your travel to and from work. And you start to realize like, you know what? The average is actually 25 minutes. If I give myself 25 minutes to get to work, most of the time I'm gonna be on time. Sometimes I'll be a little bit early and every once in a while I'll be late still because it'll be something truly unexpected. and you know, because if you live in a place that has a lot of bad traffic, you can expect that. You should you should write that into your program. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, that's a very simple example of uh, sort of looking at your daily routines. And you kind of write it down day by day. And you, you could go for a week, two weeks, however long, long you, you can kind of handle it, honestly. Because first of all, it's kind of a pain. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of pull yourself out of, out of things to sort of write every hour, sort of write things down so you don't forget them, you know. And it's kind of like a very vulnerable place to be because you're putting yourself under the microscope and no, yeah. no one likes to do that <laughs> yeah it makes me think of um i'm a big fan of uh pema children who i've mentioned on the podcast before the she's a buddhist nun mm-hmm. and she talks a lot about taking a good look at yourself and not running away because most people you know most of us like our instinct is to run away when we encounter something that we don't like mm-hmm. or that we're uncomfortable with and i like your point about like we have all these stories about ourselves and we might not even realize what our actual habits are. Like Mm -hmm. in my episode with Keisha Moore, she talked about how like you can create intentional rituals in your life. Like everything Mm -hmm. you do, that's a habit you can create intentionally or you can just keep doing the same things without even knowing what you're doing really. Right. And realizing that they're habits and and it's just so interesting because I think we're all just so afraid of that first step that you're talking about of actually taking inventory because it can be like really painful. And, oh, and if you don't have any compassion and if you don't believe that you're forgivable, like it's going to be pretty much impossible because you have to believe that even if you're doing things like com- the complete opposite way of how you would like to be doing them, that you have the ability and even that you deserve to, you know, turn things around. Yeah, that's a good point because, um, you know, when you step outside yourself and you start viewing it under that detail, like you might have compassion from that perspective because like outside of yourself, you might be able to be compassionate for yourself or you might like be an utter horror. It's, it's kind of yeah. hard to say, you know, Yeah. but, but compassion should be there. I think that you can, if, if, if a person's personality is such that they don't like to look under the microscope themselves and the more they look, the, the more like unpleasant and uncomfortable it is. One, one thing I, I like to think about, um, which I didn't directly relate to this until right now, but um, if I'm feeling that kind of way where I'm kind of not really too happy with myself and not really liking what I see, I'll kind of, you know, look at one of my children or something like that and, and see them as like an extension of myself mm. and try to put those same thoughts and have myself onto them. And it's a really awful feeling, right? Mm. And then it snaps you have compassion. Say like, you know, I'm mad at myself for this. What if my children were doing that? Would Mm -hmm. I have the same reaction? Absolutely not. I would have compassion. You know, I might be frustrated. I might be 
flustered or angered, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be that hard on them as I would be myself. Yeah. And therefore it's not really necessary to be that hard on ourselves either. And that's just a different sort of like mechanism of, uh, the thing is, it's, it can be easier to be hard on ourselves and kind of tear ourselves apart than to actually make a change. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because it's like, if you don't expect anything of yourself, then you won't be disappointed if you don't live up to anything. Or mm-hmm. if, if you if you just say, well, I'm just the worst, then, yep. <laughs> you know, then no one's going to be, you know, you're not going to let yourself down or let anybody else down because you already told them up front, I'm the worst, you know? Right. I try to say it over and over again, like with this system, I'm talking about the personal mise-en-place. Um, it shouldn't be about changing per se or, or changing your personality. It should be about bringing things into balance. So the best parts of yourself and the parts of yourself that are looking out for, for you are the ones driving the car. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is where I split up the self in this sort of system. I, I split the self into five parts. I have sort of like a pie chart, if you can imagine, kind of like a trivial pursuit uh, pie, kind mm-hmm. of. Starting at the top of, of the pie chart is social, the social self. Then going down to the right is the physical self. Then down again is the emotional self, the mental or psychological self. And then lastly, right before you get back to the social self, is the teleological self. The teleological self is the goal-directed self, so the part of you that has thoughts about the future and has plans, big or small, you know, like, that might be a goal of, of career. It might be a goal of what kind of things you want to do with your life. It might be small things that you want to do, like I want to stop smoking. And I've, I've wrestled with cigarette smoking um, on and off for years, and I've quit for long periods of time and then sometimes gotten dragged back into it. And you know what the funny thing was? Like, What took me finally able to like, quit where I feel like it's for real is that I was finally able to identify all of the reasons I smoked mm. and address each one of them. Because the thing is, like, if you address four of the five reasons you smoke, and again, this comes back to your chart, because, like, I can tell you there's one reason for each um, category of my pie chart. Social is number one, right? Well, social one's obvious. I, so- I smoke socially because it got me out in the smoker circle talking yeah. to my coworkers and to-, and to guests and, like, having fun and sharing a cigarette. It's a very, yeah. like, social ritual, you know? So that's fun. Mm-hmm. So. So that, and that was a good thing. I, I, I won't say that that's a bad thing. Um, for physical reasons, now that's obviously there's a lot of bad physical um, reactions to smoking, um, but we have to address that there are good things too or else we're not being honest. And, and the good thing would be like, even though the, the, the chemical in, in cigarettes, nicotine, is not something that calms anxiety or calms nerves, the ritual of smoking is something that calms nerves mm-hmm. and calms anxiety, right? And that's always missed when people talk about things like addictive things. They always forget to mention that, like, it doesn't necessarily have to be about the chemical. The mm-hmm. chemical might be the thing that keeps you coming back phys- physiologically, but the ritual is what keeps you coming back mm-hmm. and sort of takes care of what you think is taking care of. So from a physical standpoint, yes, smoking did calm me um, because the ritual made, made me feel settled in my mind. Uh, from an emotional standpoint, very similar if I was feeling very frustrated or angered or upset, you know, I would go and get out of there and have a cigarette because first of all, it takes you out of the moment. Like you've gotten yourself away from the scene of the action. You got a little time out from life sort of, you know, mm-hmm. and emotionally you're able to either calm down or just like scream and, you know, deal with it. Um, psychologically, again, very similar. Uh, you know, there. 
as I already mentioned, like there's certain calming aspects of doing something like cigarette smoking. And then of course you get to teleological and that's where you're kind of like, you know what? There's not really anything I can assign to the teleological mm -hmm. category for smoking. Um, it's not advancing my career. It's not advancing my goals. Um, if it is, it's in very minor ways and it's very, and that's the point where you say, you know what? Like if that isn't somebody helping me meet goals, it can so easily be replaced by something more positive. And once you kind of find that chink in the armor, you can kind of work backwards to the harder ones. And the hardest one for me, interestingly, was the first one, which is the social one. Yeah. Um, and I, I need to find ways to recreate that same feeling and recreate that ritual in different ways. And it's silly at first, but you do it and you're kind of reprogramming your brain to create that same set of circumstances and that same feeling. Um from a different action. Uh, and after a little while, it kind of rewrites over it so that you kind of, it just feels natural. Um, and then maybe you completely remove away, away from that altogether. But it, it's the idea of when you subtract, you have to add. And when I added, when I subtracted smoking the other times and four out of the five things were counted for, there's always the one that wasn't being taken care of. So I had to find that last piece before I could actually quit it and then not feel the urge, you know, to smoke. That's, um, that's so fascinating and so helpful to think of actually all of the positive, like you're totally flipping the script because so often we just have hammered in our heads, like smoking is bad. You know, mm -hmm. you are bad if you smoke. Um, yeah. And there's just all this like shame about it. And it could just make someone feel so ashamed about the behavior that they don't feel feel like they can change it but actually being able to identify the positive impulses behind it and positive effects that you're going for is really interesting because I've yeah. heard people say that the most effective way to change behavior is not to think about what you can't do but about what you can do what you want yeah. to do what you get to do if you change this behavior so like if someone's trying to change how they eat it's not about I can't eat cookies and ice cream now. It's about I can feel well and I can feel, you know, like calm and I can feel energized and things like that. Um, and mm -hmm. I can eat all of these like all these different foods that are really like delicious and, and that make me feel good. So, yeah, that's such a fascinating like way to, to turn it on its head. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's an honest way to approach it. And what's always kind of missing Um when we talk about this type of stuff and like, you know, smoking is, is a pretty, is pretty low hanging fruit. Uh, but it's also a little bit non-controversial because there's everyone's always trying to give a million ways for how to stop and all yeah. that. And, you know, some of those things work and some of those things work in conjunction. Like um, I did use nicotine patches um, because it did help with the literal phys physiological um, issues of withdrawal, that sort of thing. But it didn't really touch anything about the ritual or the social aspects. Mm -hmm. So it had to be in conjunction with things. And like, it, you know, this, the same thing I'm talking about can be applied to kind of literally anything. And like, obviously the way I'm um, given the class now is specifically directed towards like the hospitality industry. Cause I feel like that's an area where the industry needs so much help. You know, like there's so little resources uh, and help out there for us in the industry um, there's almost really never even HR people per se, you know, kind of like your managers or HR person, but that might not be a good thing, um, or might not be enough. So 
that's kind of where I'm trying to help to change the culture there. But that being said, like in working on this and it was intended for this reason and for this industry, I started to realize like you could kind of apply this to anything. And so the first side is just kind of tracking like, like all the little details about your day and your behavior and your patterns and keeping track of like how many cups of coffee you had, how much sleep you got and all that stuff and the quality of all those things. And did you read how much TV did you watch, et cetera, et cetera. And the back page is more like a little bit more open boxes to kind of talk about your intentions for the day. That could be your goals or long-term or short-term. Um, and then there's a section for notable events, um, you know, which is just kind of like keep a track of things that happen that are noteworthy in any way, like as briefly as possible, but like little things you kind of go back to and you start to see connections and patterns and might help you sort of like avoid things or expand upon things. It's meant to be a little bit open source. So like you could change it. Like, uh, but the main thing is you're just kind of tracking. I'm just trying to get cover like a lot of like the basic areas of, of daily life. Cause the idea of this whole system is to increase work efficiency, um, create a work-life balance and help your goals or self-actualization. And not in that <laughs> embarrassing way of like reading your old like journals and hmm. like <laughs> in, in preparation for this, I kind of did that unfortunately cause I was looking for some, uh, some papers and, it's always like not fun to be like, Oh God, I can't believe I ripped it down. But, um, <laughs> so it, this is trying to not be that. So that's why I kind of keep the notes and stuff like pretty simple, pretty basic. Cause like, I don't want there to be any more of a reason to not want to do this process or not right. want to go back and look at it. It should be like scary at first, but eventually kind of just like wrote, it's just feel like something you do and it becomes part of your team. And it's just like another exercise that kind of combines all of your faculties um, collecting data about mm -hmm. your life, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's helpful in many situations, especially like, like I had to go to the doctor recently. I was having really bad back. I've had back issues for a really long time now. Um, and uh, it, it started to act up really bad. And so I went to the doctor, got run through a battery test. Of course, in my mind, I'd already made up that I had something really awful, you know? Yeah. And I think we do that to ourselves a lot. Like, I know plenty of people will not go to the doctor because they're convinced they're going to get like the worst news imaginable. Yeah. And they therefore don't go make themselves more susceptible to something ha yeah. awful happening. Right. And then I'm uh, guilty of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think we've all done that. And like, and then you go to the doctor, you're expecting something awful and they tell you it's not something awful. You do, it's like, you don't even want to hear that. You know, it's like you'd already made up your mind that it was something <laughs> awful. And now they're telling you something that's actually manageable, but demands, the management of it is inconvenience. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's like, oh God, you're telling me like, so you're telling me that I don't have cancer. That's good. That's good news. <laughs> but what I have to do is like 20 minutes of like back stretches every day. Yeah. Oh my God, you give me. You know? <laughs> it's yeah. so amazing how quickly we go from like, or maybe even like initially you feel like so grateful and then you walk out of the office and then a second later you're like, this is so annoying. <laughs> like, yeah. It's amazing how quickly yeah. our brains shift from like sheer gratitude and like, I'm going to cherish my health to like, yeah. I don't want to do this. <laughs> oh, totally. As soon as you get home, you're like, oh, I'm not doing that. You get back yeah. to the dentist, you're like, you throw the floss thing in the drawer and yeah. forget about it. But, like, but also I realized too, like going to a doctor, which can be an unpleasant experience if you approach it the wrong way, doesn't have to be. Um, you know, that's the thing too. Like, I hear this a lot with people who don't like going to the doctor or going to therapist. It's like, it might be like a bad fit, but they just, they just can't think there might be a good fit out there. Right. And, and it's kind of weird. Like if you think about it, like from a dating perspective, you wouldn't keep dating the same person you weren't getting along yeah. with. 
So why would you see the same therapist, the same doctor, you know? And if you ha- go on a bad date, it doesn't mean that everyone out there is going to be a bad date, right? right? And so it's so again, but I think it's just kind of one of those defense mechanisms like, see, I went to the doctor and it didn't work out. So yep. that was pointless. I told you, you know. Um, but then so you do get to the doctor. Well, now, first of all, you have to be honest. And that still can be hard, even though doctors need to hear the truth. We still tend to conceal things from them, right? <laughs> yeah. And this chart kind of helps with that because it kind of like puts it in black and white. And also just memory, because like the doctor asked me, so well, when did this start? And I was like, um, uh, you know, it was either like seven months ago or three days ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. And, and you never realize yeah. it until you're sitting right there. Like, oh, why didn't I think about, you know, like yeah. <laughs> how I was going to answer these questions? Yeah. So like you're totally unprepared for a doctor. And these doctors, their doctors can kind of get a bad rap, but these, these poor people you know, these good men and women of uh, medicine are having to deal with people who don't want to be there, who are not going to be honest, aren't going to listen to them, have already made their minds up, <laughs> aren't going to follow their advice, and half the time can't remember any of the details of their yeah. own problem, yeah. you know? And I realized that that's another very concrete way to be like, you know, the doctor can ask a question, you open up your little notebook, and you're like, March 7th. Yep. <laughs> I started feeling that pain on March 7th. <laughs> yeah. Um. So like that, that's a very practical way where this thing can be helpful. Um, but, you know, the idea is like you kind of, you do this inventory of yourself, you figure out your patterns, behaviors, you write it all down. Then you start using a specific chart. Start using it the way it is at first, see what your routines are like, and then you might decide to change it. Like I've, I've already changed this chart like 10 times, you know. I've removed things, I've added things, and I realize like I'm not really using this section. But I keep writing things in that there's no space for, you know, so... So I fine-tuned it, and then that, that idea is, like, anyone should and could do that, you know, because, like, different things will be more relevant to different people. I mean, some of, like, the basic things, like body system functions and food and sleep are going to be pretty much the same for everybody, you know, um, have the same importance for everybody. Other things are different. So It's your mise en place, right? It, exactly. It is personal mise en place. So, so that's the idea, and then you're kind of charting and tracking the stuff, and, like, you start to see where things are missing, right? And like, you start to see like, well, you know, like, uh, I'm having a lot of back pain, and it's because I'm not doing a lot of physical exercise. I'm not, I'm not like, my core is not getting any exercise, so that's what I'm going to add. I'm going to add that. So I'm going to do some research and find out, you know, there's a lot of things I don't want to do. Like, I don't want to do sit-ups, you know. What can I do? And then you do research, and the, the great thing about the information age is like, there's so much stuff out there. That, yeah you can vet and get secondary sources on and it's actually really easy to start filling the mise en up with really positive and good things. Um, and of course, removing things and being careful to replace them with other things and try to stop it by degrees and kind of have like little victories to me. It's kind of been always been like a sort of smart yeah. approach rather than like the sort of harsh, you know, short term, like cold Turkey approach, you know, progress, not perfection. Right. Yeah. But we all want an immediate quick fix. Right. Like we, and we all want to be able to say, starting tomorrow, I'm going to be a different person. <laughs> right. And, and, and the thing is, from that point of view, you're not going to, because yeah. you're going to keep telling yourself that same thing over and over again that tomorrow I'm going to do that. Meanwhile, you're not. But when you start to do little victories every day, like I, you know, I'm just going to do five minutes of exercise once a week. Five minutes is all I'm going to do. I'm going to commit to that, you know? 
and you start doing that and tracking that, it actually starts to feel pretty good. And you start to realize like five minutes isn't a big deal. And now it's like 10 minutes or now it's 10 minutes twice a week. And like scaling it up, it, it's so much easier to scale it up from like a small victory um, than to try to like jump all the way to like, I have never done exercise and I'm going to start exercising three hours a week. Like no way. Yeah, I'm going to do a triathlon in three months. Yeah. Or unrealistic goals too. Another, another behavior problem is like unrealistic goals. Like if you're like, uh, you know, I'm going to be the best guitar player in the world. You know, that's my, that's my aim, you know? Uh, like, well, first of all, what does that mean? You know, it's kind of like, doesn't mean anything to say things like the best or the greatest or like that doesn't, it's, it's all subjective. And, um, but if what, you know, if, if you're saying I'm striving towards a certain degree of proficiency with playing an instrument, playing the guitar, what are you willing, is that really your top goal? And if so, what are you willing to do? Cause the people who have done that sort of thing and they're out there obviously, right. It's like their highest priority, like bigger priority than like their family and their friends and having a relationship and learning anything else. And sure. You know, that's what you're going to do. You, you can do it. And that's why, like, again, like, this is all about finding balance, like, what your balance looks like. Because it's going to be different for everybody. And, like, what works for me to quit smoking isn't necessarily going to work for somebody else. But I guarantee you there is something, you know. Um, if there's a problem and we can identify it, there's probably a solution for it. Even though it might be very difficult, it's probably out there in some way. Mm. You know, when it, comes, when it comes to these sorts of things. I'm not saying, like, you can just, like, think yourself away from disease or something like that i'm not saying that but like what, we're, what we are talking about is more behaviors right and, and, and patterns behavior so that being said i do think that there's a lot to be said for positive reinforcement and what i call um propositional attitudes which is a philosophical term and a propositional attitude i think in psychology we call like a meta program and it's kind of like we have them whether we like them or not like we get a lot of our programs and medical program well all of our programs uh, this terminology is from the psychologist John C. Lilly, who uh, did a lot of work in the 60s with um, isolation tanks and LSD, ketamine, that sort of thing. And um, his thing was like programs are kind of things can be something as basic as like your brain telling your intestines to break down matter and that sort of stuff. You know, that's a program that's running and you don't have you don't have to do anything about it. And in fact, you should just kind of let it let it run. And then there's a little higher level programs that are, are a little bit more take a little bit more mind and, and consciousness. And then there's more overt programs that are kind of like the process of attitudes go on in your head that say that tell you things like, I am not a good guitar player. Mm. I will never quit smoking, you know? And some of these programs you get when you're very young, when you're a child, when you don't even know what they mean per se, but can just sort of just they're just running endlessly on a loop, you know. And then the meta programs are the programs that run all the smaller programs, kind of like the even the higher level thinking, and it can be very complex and very hard to, to uh sort of see for them, see for where they are, let alone change them. And then when you are able to change, it's called a self meta program where you're actually kind of reprogramming yourself. Um, and that could be for good or bad. I mean, if you've got a bad script in your, in your brain running saying like, I'm no good, I'm a terrible person. That's probably a program or a meta program you want to change. Right. Um, and you have to replace that with another program that kind of says the opposite. Like I'm really good. I can change, you know, um, which is going to feel really false at first. But if you start small and try to sort of like squash down the other program with the new proposition, eventually you'll kind of gain a little bit of a foothold. And then with those sort of little little tiny victories I was talking about, just kind of like made progress here, made progress there, keep having that sort of script running your brain, working against the, the program you don't want in there, 
um, you know, great progress could be made. And similar to the thing with the smoking, where you kind of replace the smoking with a different behavior, you can replace those bad attitudes with new positive ones. And balance is key because, again, you don't want to like um, have unrealistic expectations or goals, you know, um, saying I'm the worst being replaced by I'm the best probably isn't going to get you any mm-hmm. further along, <laughs> you know, but yeah. saying, starting with maybe like, I'm, maybe I'm not so bad, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and working from there yeah. probably gives a little bit more of a foothold, you know, it feels more authentic too. Like it feels more like something you can trust, I think. Um, yeah. And I know there's also some studies about how like we cling to negative things Mm -hmm. Um, like Velcro and positive things are like air to us. Like we're very, because we're all, because as humans um, we're on the lookout for threats or, you know, we, we, we're concerned with security. Yeah, it's true. No, there, there is something weird about that. And that gets another part of my, um, my program about progress, because for some reason it's so much easier for the things we haven't done or haven't finished or have to do to feel so much more powerful than the things we have done and the yeah. product we've made. Yeah. And we make progress and we don't even see it happen. We just kind of forget about it. It kind of happens like in an invisible way. Um, and even though we've made progress, we don't really reward ourselves for it. We don't really think about it too much. And we're just right back to having stress about the stuff yet to do. And that's another reason why this chart works really well because you're, you're, you're mapping your progress as much as you're, you're mapping your failures, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so be able to look back in the sheet and be like, oh my God, like I got all that done. Like I did so much. I did so much work. Like, yeah. and I think it's important to reward ourselves for that and, and to sort of like take stock of that a little bit. Um, because otherwise, like a lot of us won't, I'm not saying every person's like that, but there's a lot of personalities where like, we're not satisfied with anything we, we do because we just think there's always still just more to do, but there is always more to do. There's always going to be more to do that doesn't diminish the progress you made, you know? So seeing it in writing, like kind of like kicks you in the pants a little bit to sort of be like, stop being such a jerk to yourself. Yeah. You know, (laughs) just accept that you're a good person. You made progress because if you can accept that and you can kind of give that a space to breathe, you're going to do more of it. So many of the behaviors that you're describing are born out of fear and Mm -hmm. it does take some courage to, like you said, to be honest, to really take stock. And I'm just curious, where do you get your courage from to do this? Uh, uh, that's a great question. I, I guess I haven't thought about it in those terms. I usually start by talking about, you know, the famous quotes like know thyself and the unexamined life is not worth living. I kind of skipped over that a little bit. Um, the unexamined life is not worth living is, is Socrates, you know, um, and I don't necessarily agree with that because I think there's probably plenty of animals out there having just great lives out examining <laughs> them. <laughs> but um, I do think it is worth examining life. And to do that, you do have to be a little bit fearless and you have to kind of stare into the void and kind of look into yourself and then through it and kind of have to face that literal sort of demon, you know, like it's, it's scary. Mm. It's kind of terrifying um, knowing that that's in there, that there's like, darkness inside of you um but you kind of have to face it head on and look at it because the thing is like by doing so you actually feel compassion for the darkness Mm. 
Yeah. You have to be able to name it. Right? Yes. Name, name it's important. Because as you name it, you kind of demystify it and you start to pull it apart bit by bit. And it's not as scary in its component parts. Mm. Um, and so like, there's this whole, okay, so I'm going to read you a quote. Um, okay. So this is physicist Freeman Dyson. Enlightenment came to me suddenly and unexpectedly one afternoon in March when I was walking up to the school notice board to see whether my name was on the list for tomorrow's football meeting. I was not on the list. In a blinding flash of inner light, I saw the answer to both my problems, the problem of war and the problem of injustice. That answer was amazingly simple. I called it cosmic unity. Cosmic unity said, there's only one of us. We are all the same person. I am you, and I am Winston Churchill, and Hitler, and Gandhi, and everybody. There is no problem of injustice because your sufferings are also mine. There will be no problems of war as soon as you understand that in killing me, you're only killing yourself. Wow. And the thing is, like, I don't necessarily take that metaphorically. Yeah. Like I've, I've thought, I've been thinking about that quote for like a really long time. Um, and I even in college, right, I studied philosophy at a professor, Professor Dan Kolak, that came up with the whole philosophical system called open individualism, which is like basically exploring this concept in great detail. <laughs> and and it's basically summed up by I am you um, that we're kind of all part of this really complex and vast organism which like we kind of individualize ourselves and compartmentalize ourselves and kind of create walls between who we are and our boundaries our self-identity from those around us right and I think you know as a human you kind of have to do that and you're your body is kind of built to do that. Your, your nervous system is built to do that. Um, but if you kind of look at it, if you were like an alien approaching the earth and just kind of saw all these humans scrabbling around, you wouldn't necessarily see it as all these individuals. You, you might just see it like from a different perspective as kind of like a hive mind or a pack and just kind of see it like as all these separate parts moving around each other. They don't necessarily seem connected physically but it's all kind of just one complex unit mm. kind of working in some ways against itself and in some ways working for itself the same way the body does, you know, um, you know, with white blood cells, rub blood cells and, you know, the balance within our physiological body. So from that kind of level, like looking outward from at, from outward and looking down and seeing the earth and all the people mm. on it and then connect that even to the ecosystem and the ecology of the earth and then obviously scale that all the way up as far as you can go. Um, all the planets orbiting around the sun and the sun orbiting around the galaxy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you start to see like everything is all kind of connected. Like you can't like subtract any of that stuff, you know? Um, and I, I don't mean connected in like a coincidental way. I just mean like it's all distinct things floating around the universe, but you things don't just zap in and out of existence. They're all here and they're all real. So One great ecosystem, right? One huge ecosystem, yeah. right? So when you think of like humanity as kind of like that, it starts to become interesting. You start to see like, I mean, I've had these kind of thoughts of compassion for like the really horrendous people that are kind of ruining all of our lives right now, whose names I won't name. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's almost like you're seeing like a sick part of your own self, you know? 
and and like if if you've got if your liver is ill you know um you try to heal it you don't you don't try to just kind of cut it out or maybe you do but then you have to replace it um but it's kind of like when you look at it that sense i think it's easier to to look at people closest around you it's easier to kind of like see the connection between yourself and your family and kind of feel more connected in that way um but like we're all human so it's all one really one big family and then all of the little differences between all of us don't seem so big you know mm. even if it's whether that's you know racial differences or gender differences or sexual preference differences or political differences um those all start to seem like relatively small in like the bigger picture mm. um and we all have that good and dark within us and we all sort of like do different things with it and no one is just simply good or bad no one's dark or light it's kind of like a, a, a mix not necessarily imbalance um but if we start to look at it that way i think we start to sort of like heal the bigger picture of who we are as humans but it has to start on the really micro level of ourselves yeah and so <laughs> i'm taking a long time to make this point but like by having compassion for yourself and looking into the darkness in yourself and letting it breathe and letting it be what it is and trying to like heal it or give it voice in a healthy way. Um, if you can start there and do that for yourself, then you can start to do that for the people around you. The ones that first of all, you like, and it's a little harder to do with the ones you don't or don't agree with. Right. So, but you have a good motivation to do so. Cause like you said in the quote, by killing me, you're only killing yourself. And I, I believe that to be literally true. Like, I, I don't even think that, like, again, like, I don't think it's metaphorical in any way. Like, when humans are doing destructive things to our planet, they're killing themselves yeah. just as well as us. Yeah. You know? Um, so it is kind of like a little bit of a cosmic perspective. And I know that can get like a little bit silly. <laughs> no, I love that. Um, That's incredible. And I, certainly we shouldn't, I don't think we should float around in that sort of thought all day long by any means. <laughs> um, but turning to it once in a while, I think is good to keep us in balance and to keep things in perspective. If you think about us being like in a big spaceship, you know, and so in, in the real spaceships that have gone out, like all the crews have to be really good at their jobs and really cognizant of what they're doing. Right. And all their resources are very limited. So none of them, none of the astronauts are going to make a mistake because if they do, they could all die. Right. Um, well, if you apply that scaled up to the entire Earth, it's the same thing. We are literally in a spaceship flying around the sun and our, our heat shields are our atmosphere. And some of us are, are trying to sort of keep it intact and others aren't kind of doing anything. And others are actively trying to remove it. You know, the actual wall that's keeping us safe from cosmic radiation, <laughs> are, some of us are actively trying to dismantle. You know, so if we kind of looked at it like we were all astronauts in the same spaceship Earth, it might change how we treat it. Yeah, and I, I like what you said about we can't necessarily float around, you know, um, considering all of that all of the time, but that it's really important to touch into it um, from time to time because kind of going back to talking about anxiety in the very beginning someone was saying to me recently that 
you know, sometimes you just have to do what you need to do. You have to compartmentalize to get through the day. Like you're at work mm-hmm. and you start to feel anxious and, you know, maybe this is a good time to just take a brisk walk around the block and then, you know, get back to work or listen to some relaxing music, get back to work. But then it's equally important to be able to take a moment um, maybe when you get home later to tap into like what was the emotion underneath the anxiety that I couldn't tap into because I was working, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and can I take some time now to to examine that, like what you're talking about, to look at it and even express it or give voice to it um, um, and or and the darker things or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So it's about being able to like move in and out of those spaces. Yeah, that's. Uh, you make a good point and to kind of bring it back to the more, you know, daily level, like from a work standpoint, like you said, like if you're at work, you can't necessarily give voice to that stuff and, and, and let it sort of go or sort of go because you're just, you're at work. You can't, you know, and that's something I'm cognizant of when I'm kind of running my team at work is I, I can tell like we have a really tight knit crew and, you know, we work hard and it's very fast paced and, you know, with like a glance at any one of, my staff, my bartenders, you know, I can tell what's going on in their brain. Like I can tell like who needs <laughs> five minutes, you know, mm. I can tell who just had to listen to something, you know, they shouldn't have had to listen. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, and I, I try to pay attention to that and, and say, Hey, go, go take five minutes, go do what you got to do. Like go meditate for five minutes or go just get a breather or go smoke a cigarette. That's what you need to do. Like those, you know, paying attention to that and trying to give that break. Cause it's, I think also like in an office situation that can be hard to be like, Oh God, like I'm kind of just, I just need a few minutes. Like, but here I am and there's people around me and I, mm-hmm. I don't feel, I can't just like leave, but it might not be hard to say like, well, I can just go to the bathroom or just, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's a little harder when like they're in service and you're kind of on the, like the lights are on, you know, the, the stage lights are on. So, but that being said, I try to, put a little more effort into uh paying attention to that and because when that thing sort of thing starts to happen and you you see someone kind of like on the precipice a little bit it's not going to get better right (laughs) um and sometimes all it takes is like going upset person and maybe telling them a joke or making them laugh or doing something silly or just doing something to pull them out of the moment you know they're experiencing or maybe you're wrong and and there was no moment you just kind of misinterpreted you know um, but they're still appreciated that you're checking. Because yeah. um, I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of or feel guilty about if you're you're kind of having a moment of vulnerability um, when you're at work. I, I, I think it's okay to be really honest about that stuff and and kind of, you know, and my I think my staff's like very honest with me. They tell me things um, that make me feel like they trust me, you know. Um, and I, I can't say I've always had those kind of uh, relationships with, with uh, coworkers or bosses, you know, uh, but it's a culture that we try to sort of, um, you know, try to encourage. And to me, it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, you never wants to save the world uh, and, and do good things. Start in your own little backyard, you yeah. know, start with what's around you. And like, it, it started to make me think like, well, th- this industry I'm in, it, it, it's, it's a place I'm in and it, and it needs some help and, and no one's not a lot of people are talking about this stuff and or not there's either like not even addressing that there's issues um, or at the minimum maybe addressing there are but not really having any solutions 
And we're kind of a new territory with that. And it just sounds like two two main themes that come from everything you've been talking about is like intention and attention, <laughs> like paying mm-hmm. attention to yourself and your life and even the people around you, like the way that you pay attention to the people that you work with and right. just respond. Like if you, if you actually do pay attention with honesty and seeing as clearly as you can, then you can set your intentions for what you actually want and mm-hmm. and you can think how to sculpt your day intentionally and every little thing that you do so that you can try to make changes like you don't have to necessarily live with that pain and just say well this mm-hmm. is just the way that it is no you're absolutely you're absolutely right because like i i think that's kind of the, the ultimate tools that we're talking about is attention and intention um and kind of what, and those might be the hardest things. So like, if you can kind of wrap your heads around those, I think the rest kind of don't seem as daunting, Yeah. you know? And then it starts to become a puzzle. And I recognize that it's wrong about this, but I kind of sort of view all this as kind of like one big puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you can identify the problem, there's a solution. If, if there's the willingness, first of all, to identify it. And then if there's a willingness to, obviously you have to want a solution, right? I mean, you might want the problem more than the solution is, is the reality. Um, but if you can identify the problem and you genuinely want a solution, then there, it can be, it can be done for a lot of, yeah. a lot of these things for as much of it as we can to sort of like bring things into balance. So that then we become, you know, like they say, the best versions of who we can be, Yeah. you know, your kind of philosophical nature and your interest in health and wellness and, and all of these things and your attention and intention. I'm thinking about how your dad and my grandfather was a, well, almost a monk <laughs> for yeah. seven years, right? He was at a monastery and yeah. I've always felt like I have a, like the monk gene in me. <laughs> like, uh-huh. and I, I mean, I know people have different relationships to Catholicism and oftentimes it's, like negative or you know the connotations of a word like monk but i'm just kind of curious if you identify with that monk gene thing at all <laughs> like do you do you feel like you have that in you like that seeker kind of um that seeking gene i i, I definitely think for a long time yeah the answer to that would be yes um but to be honest like for myself at least when i started feeling healthier and like not so tortured and like kind of giving into bad behaviors uh, that were negatively affecting my life was when I kind of let go of the secret part of myself oh. and started to become more of a cultivator. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm so glad I asked now because <laughs> that's really interesting. And it's funny because what's funny about that is, is your own, your father, John, one time I remember, I think this was around the time, uh, uh, some years ago, I think around the time I was in, in New Jersey from we were selling uh, your grandmother's house. Um, I was driving in the car, I believe, with um, your father, John, and one other person. It might have been uh, might have been Ron. It's a little hazy. Um, but your father said that uh, kind of like a running theme he saw in in the family was that like half the family were like seekers. Hmm. And he kind of points to like Liz and me and like uh, 
I can't remember who else, but he kind of said they had like a sort of like a seeker kind of thing. And the funny thing was like, I had never really thought about that. Um, but it kind of made me think about it. Like, huh, I wonder what makes him say that sort of. Cause like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think that's true. You know, um, sometimes like we don't like hearing sort of things about ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, and that's kind of like, well, yeah, I guess I could see it. And then I kind of thought about it for a long time. Um, and then there's just kind of like a certain point where it's kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of ready to let that part of my life go. Like, mm. I don't really feel the need to seek anymore. Like, I've certainly done that. Like, you know, whether it be like, uh, I'm gonna now I'm gonna read a lot about Buddhism, you know, and I'm gonna meditate every day for like a half hour and get really to that until like I'm more interested in like the Kabbalah, you know. And I think that's all very healthy stuff. It's all very fun stuff, and I'm not. I don't want to give the idea that I'm like in any way criticizing it, because I think um, the search to your the search to yourself via religious and spiritual things, I think is a very healthy one and can be very, um, can be very good, very positive and, and, and leads to really great insights and, and great actions. So I'm by no way criticizing that, but like, um, for myself personally, I just kind of saw like a pattern of like a constant seeking for the sake of seeking mm. and, and the, the seeking for the sake of seeking was just to avoid, um, the void, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and yeah. There was something kind of nice about that, about being like, why do we always have to, why do we need to be more than we already are? Mm-hmm. Why are we as we are not already amazing enough? Like, and again, this isn't like a pot shot at like religion or God or anything, but like, if you do subtract like all, like if you subtract anything spiritual or religious or that sort of thing, any of the mysteries out of life and you just kind of look at it for what it is on the most basic level, you know? And you just look at like anything in nature and just think about the fact that you're moving around and like your body knows what to do. And it's like fighting against gravity and it's you're having like complex thoughts while making coffee and, you know, planning for the next day. And then like the plate falls and you pick it up, like all like the complex functions that can happen while in your just average, like mundane life. Um, and then it happening everywhere and all like the sort of the dance and the pageant of life all around you, like, and and nature and everything like that in itself and on the most fundamental level without any needing any more explanation, any more added to it. And I'm not saying there isn't any more, but like if you just take it at its most basic mm-hmm. level, it's super amazing and awesome and kind of like magical. Right. So like when you kind of look at, again, kind of looking from that perspective and kind of stepping out of yourself a little bit and kind of seeing yourself as an organism, that's just like kind of really fascinating you know, mm. and suddenly, like, you're not looking at, like, you know, like, look, if you look at your body, like, in the mirror, and you're like, oh, God, like, I'm a little, like, you know, heavier than I'd want to be, and a little less, you know, I wish uh, I had a different color hair, and blah, 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 which was a little bit taller, you know, all that stuff, like, the kind of self uh, body image stuff we go, we all go through, you know, um, that's one way to kind of look at yourself, but at the same time, it's like, these hands are amazing. Like these eyeballs are incredible. Like what, <laughs> how, how does exactly does this, all, does this all happen? You know? Yeah. Um, so even just kind of subtracting like the questioning of it and, I'm, and those are very relevant questions, but like just looking at it and observing it from that standpoint, it's just like also utterly amazing and so rare. I mean, we don't know how much life there is in the universe. We know about our own on this planet and that's it. That's all we can account for, whether 
there's any life out there in other galaxies ever like mathematically there probably is probably will never get to experience it but like regardless like no matter how you cut it life versus matter is very rare right so this is very in some ways the ratio of of living thinking things versus you know matter that is not is huge difference so we know at the very least we're very rare we know in some ways it's a very unique you know epoch in in all of history and like why why do we need to be more why do we need to seek more and why can't we just kind of like be happy with it sort of and just kind of respect it and like nurture it and like nurture it and um cultivate it and kind of think of ourselves as like gardeners like tending to ourselves and tending Mm -hmm. to the planet rather than like the bosses try to like push us around like push ourselves around and push the mm-hmm. our environment around you know um and i i don't know the answer i'm kind of asking rhetorically um but it kind of caused me to sort of think like you know what like i'm kind of done with like the big questions like mm. i kind of don't care why there's something instead of nothing like, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. really it doesn't really matter yeah you know um but there's like a million little questions that i think kind of do matter mm-hmm. and like there's people out there thinking about big questions and let them keep doing it. God bless them. You know, um, for me personally, like at this stage in my life, like I'm more interested in the little things and like, you know, just being, I, I think maybe having children's part of that too. Cause like, you know, that whole cliche, like everything your child does is like utterly amazing. Yeah. You know? And parents can talk about like their, the contents of their child's diaper and like be happy about it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that is, that's a true cliche. And I, I think that's just because like, when you're in that state again and it's like a little baby or a little child, like it's a lot more permissible to be in awe. We're permitted to have awe when it comes to a child and like you kind of get away with it and might get a little ribbing, but like, it's okay. Cause it's new and it's fresh. And it's like, see this amazing little baby. Um, and if you think about it, when a baby is born, what do we do? We track everything it does. Just like I'm kind of proposing tracking our lives now as adults. We track, you know, how many bowel movements the kid had? We track like if the eyes are glazed over and if you know how how the, how the baby's breathing, how much sleep it got, um, how, how how much it fed. You track all that stuff in the early days of a child's life, and you're paying attention to every little thing, and all that just seems like so magical and so amazing. And the reason why it it, it seems a way is because it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there doesn't we don't need to write a book about this. Like it just is amazing. So, and it's permissible to to revel into all of that until we start to get a little bit older and we become adults. And then we're more concerned with kind of like focusing on the negative things, um, the things we didn't do, the things we aren't, um, rather than the things we are. So it just returns to my question, like why do we need to be more than what we already are? Yeah. Like, can we just, even for like five minutes a day. And again, you yeah. can't float in that space for all time. You can't sit there looking yourself in the mirror being like, Oh my God, like what an amazing, you know, all eyebrow, these, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, But why not like five minutes a week kind of like give, you know, give that some space to sort of breathe, you know? Yeah. And and sort of check in with ourselves. And I think it is like a little bit having to snap out of your own perspective and kind of go to like that little bit of like uh, sort of viewpoint that's kind of you, but not quite you, um, which 
it becomes harder and harder to get in touch with, like as life gets more busy and more technologically based, I think. Um, there's so many more distractions now where like it's a lot harder to find that sort of peace, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and it becomes more verified and therefore it becomes like more, it becomes easier to like not do and it becomes easier to ridicule. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has to be something that makes it happen too. Like, so in other words, like if you're trying to find peace uh, and, and you have to do that by like insanely, like, you know, going at cardio or, or doing extreme yoga, if that's what gets you there, like awesome, you know, but like the fact that we have to kind of go to extreme lengths to experience like <laughs> moments of peace mm-hmm. is in itself kind of like tell- telling about like this kind of culture we've created for ourselves, you know? Yeah. And that, yeah, that was such a, an amazing answer because I think you're right that constant seeking can definitely be a form of avoidance and Mm-hmm. another version of that restlessness that does permeate our whole culture like you were just saying and um although yeah like that that restlessness and seeking is pretty runs across cultures and times i think but sure but i also think that irony is like those religious or spiritual figures that do have the most equanimity or peace i don't think they are trying to like answer questions i think they're the ones that can just sit or rest in mystery, you know? <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of ironic. Um, yeah. Which is why every Zen Kwan basically means just like, shut up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like every, every riddle that they have the monks just sort of sitting, meditating on for like years and years, trying to come up with the correct answer. When at the end of the day, it's just trying to say like, shut up, right. <laughs> stop thinking, you yeah. know, trying to get you to stop thinking. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the point. It's like, um, and I think, and, and again, like, it's I, I, I'm more interested in balance. I think there's a time in your life to seek, um, and there's a time in your life to just sort of mm-hmm. cultivate, you know. And if they're in balance, that's great. I think for myself, when I when I said like I was kind of tired of seeking, I think it's because I wasn't keeping in balance. I was seeking too much, yeah, you know, yeah, and I wasn't paying enough respect and, and and you know to the other side of it, which is cultivating. Yeah, like and, putting like being rooted in something right so that things mm-hmm. can grow and that's the thing too it's like i do really get a kick out of like some of the most like mundane things you know like um even just like washing the dishes in a certain mindset can be really pleasurable like yeah if you think of it something you have to do it has to get done like i can't leave the house until i get the dishes done that's kind of like the mentality that leads to the dishes just piling up and then therefore because you want to avoid it and then therefore you make your work harder um, but when you don't approach that way, you kind of see it's something that like, it is like, it is the substance of life. It's not like the thing you have to get through to get to life. Mm-hmm. It is actually the substance like you're living while you're washing those dishes. Yep. Now you can choose to have your brain somewhere else and be obsessing about what you have to do and that you have to get in the car to rush to red lights. Right. And then therefore you're not going to enjoy the process of washing those dishes. And look, there's nothing exceedingly pleasurable about washing dishes it's just that if you're doing it in such a way where like you're enjoying being alive in that moment and just saying like all i have to do right now is wash dishes mm-hmm. that actually brings me to a kind of cool um quote that i'm gonna mess up that kind of brings me back to like the specifics of what i'm talking about and 
Another kind of godfather of our industry is a man named Dale DeGroff. Um, and he was a guy that kind of, again, kind of kickstarted the whole craft cocktail revolution back in the 80s. So, you know, he's largely, you know, kind of like a guru to all of us. And there's a, I can't remember the exact quote. I have not been able to find it or remember where I saw it, but he talks about being in the, the bar he's working at in the 80s. It was called the Rainbow Room. It was super hip, super swank, like really wealthy and famous people went in there every night. It was always jam-packed and he was kind of a celebrity bartender there. And it was just being like five deep at the bar all night long, right? So a lot of, a lot of pressure and executed at a high level. And he would talk about when he would stir a cocktail, you know, and he's got his mixing glass and he's got his different parts of the cocktail in there with ice and he's got his long spoon and he's just stirring it. Stirring a cocktail is like a really like zen thing. Like it's really hard to do. Like when you're first learning how to do it, it's like really clunky and like people try to teach you and they give you all these tricks for learning it, but you just can't because you can't really learn it that way. But then eventually you kind of like you're, you're, you figure it out on your own, like your body figures it out. And then like once you figure it out, like you never forget how to do it. Um, and it's like a really like nice fluid motion. It takes a lot of dexterity. Um, so when you're doing that and you're kind of getting into that zone, he talks about stirring a cocktail, one in each hand, and he's just looking out. And in that moment, all he has to do is stir that. He can't mm. do anything else. He can't take more orders. He can't talk to anybody. He can't be doing any more than he's doing. He's just making those two drinks. And in that moment, he finds his peace in himself. And he just looks out in the crowd. And he just kind of like takes it all in. And maybe he notices details of what's happening. And this is this very peaceful moment he talks about. And he feels like really in control. In this total mayhem, by yeah. the way. Like, I always thought that was really cool. And that's kind of similar thing I'm talking about where it's like, focus on what you're doing at that moment, appreciate yeah. it and enjoy it. And maybe it's a, like, it's not that unpleasant to wash the dishes either. You know, like it's not torture, you know, I'm not suggesting that we try to find that peaceful Zen moment while we're being like operated on or something. Um, but something that gets like a bad rap, which is like mundane chores yeah. can actually feel really good and be really fulfilling because it's it's it, it that actually is also kind of like a, a not like a time in instead of a time out, you know. Like what we seek when we're smoking a cigarette is a time out from life. Say, huh, I just need three and a half minutes, which is the amount of time it takes to smoke an American spirit away from life. Yeah, and no one's gonna mess with me, and I can just have a break. Well, doing actions that are like positive for your life, like clean, feel really good because as you're cleaning your environment you're kind of cleaning like your, your brain too. And it's kind of taking a rhythm. And I think that's what upsets us about stuff like that is that it takes a certain amount of time to wash the dishes or run the dishwasher or, or do laundry or mop the floor, you know? Um, and we would rather be doing something else and you can't speed those things up. It takes the time it takes like no amount of like going really fast is going to get it cleaner. Cause it's just going to be sloppy. And I think we are annoyed that we can't speed up that part. Mm -hmm. um, but if we just accepted, like, hey, and that's part of what I did when I was kind of initially writing out all my stuff. Like, I would write, like, how long it took to do the dishes, how long it would take to fold the laundry, how long, you know, how long it would take to do all those little chores and, and things I had to do to advance my day along. And, and you start to accept them as kind of like the um, – kind of like the set and setting of, of, of your life. Like, they're part of it, you know? Like you can't avoid them. So just embrace it. It's not that bad. And then like, and then you kind of start to think like, oh, you know what? 
I have five minutes to wash the dishes. I'm washing those dishes. I'm going to think about blah, blah, blah. And it's actually going to be pretty relaxing, you know? So it's actually a time in. Um, and I think, like, just kind of like a healthy way to approach like those little mundane things. Like if we can appreciate the little mundane things and kind of let them give them their respect, then we're probably going to be able to do the things that are more challenging, you know? Yeah. I really relate to that because I, I just moved into my first apartment in early October. So like three months Mm -hmm. ago and I love cleaning the kitchen at night. Like, <laughs> yeah, I love doing the dishes and wiping down the counter and and thinking. And I, I've definitely had those moments where I just like take a deep breath and I'm like, this is all I have to do right now in this moment is just mm-hmm. tidy up this kitchen and not in like a there are definitely ways where people can use cleaning as like a frantic distraction thing. But to actually doing it in that very present way, like you're saying can feel so good. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it's like, you know, I, it took five years to get to this place of living in my own space. And I have so much gratitude for it and to be able to care for it and like be a steward of the space that I live in is meaningful in the most, in the smallest ways. And um, actually what I think is so funny about it is that I've heard a lot of monks say um, most of living in a monastery is doing the dishes. <laughs> yeah. And that if you, and that doing the dishes can be a prayer in and of itself. Um, yeah. I, I, I like that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense, especially if like you're living a pretty quiet life, like mm-hmm. all those little things. House, like, it, like yeah. yeah, those are, those are the, act, that's what they're doing. You know, <laughs> they're doing the dishes and, but that in and of itself, sometimes you are zoning out, but sometimes it can really be like a time where you feel gratitude and you're paying attention. And some people might call that prayer depending on their, you know, perspective or their yeah. language. Sure. No, absolutely. I, I think, uh, yeah, exactly. How, how they name it as prayer or what, like however you want, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to name it, however it makes sense to you, however it works, it, it does work. Like, you know, like, and that's why I think like, ritual is really important in a secular way or religious way mm-hmm. secular religion, rituals like they have a lot in common and they kind of like give structure to our lives and so like when you have this ritual and see it as such it kind of empowers you to get through it step by step and then like the kind of things that you would consider like important or you need to do like become a little bit more manageable and don't seem so overwhelming because you're kind of like doing it by degrees. Yeah. Um, there's a really great Brian Eno quote um, that's on the liner notes to the On Land record. Um, I always really liked and he, So he's just kind of talking about how, you know, when he created the sort of whole like ambient genre of music, um, it was something he had been thinking about for a long time and how to do it, how to go about it. And there was trial and error and experimentational stuff, but here's a quote he says this often happens you imagine a territory rich in possibilities and think of how you may get to it and then one day you look around and realize you have been there for quite some time and end quote i i think that's so amazing because like it is so true like you focus your focus goes elsewhere 
when you're when you're working on things and doing things and, and like again like the progress is kind of invisible and at a certain point you look back and you're like oh my god like i did that you know like i'm here like i've been doing this for a while like i'm not aiming to get somewhere i'm doing it yeah and and that's again that kind of gets back to the whole like seeking versus cultivation like seek but then know when to cultivate mm-hmm. and then cultivate for as long as you can until it's time to seek again you know yeah I think that's, I feel like that's a good place to tie a bow. And I will, I will talk to you soon. I can't wait till the episode. All right. Thanks. Good night. All right. Bye, Victoria. Bye. Good night.